strength, wisdom, energy, attitude, and time. Welcome to the Sweat Podcast. We've got Alan Aragon with us today. He is one of the four horsemen of the evidence-based fitness and nutrition apocalypse. Uh, a much-needed apocalypse in today's world because when you look at things like climbing obesity rates, we need to install the evidence-based approach instead of the marketing-based approach. So, Alan, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great, Mark. Thank you so much for inviting me on, man. This is just really cool. Happy to be here. Oh, it's a treat to have you. I know we're going to be talking about a lot of really fun and useful and practical stuff today, not just uh, in the world of nutrition. We will be talking about a lot of things that we are seeing in the United States and really across the world today when it comes to health and nutrition. We're going to be talking about um, some of the more applicable aspects of what you're finding in your research that people can take back. But we're also going to be talking about you, your life, and what got you here. And so that's one of the things that I want to dive into first is being someone who found a way to build a career off of running a research review as a business. Um, I'd never heard of that in my life before. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what got you interested in the whole evidence-based approach to nutrition in the first place? Okay, great question. The evidence-based movement in the, the nutrition and fitness industry was essentially started by, I want to give Lyle McDonald uh, credit for starting it in his own little nasty corner of the internet. <laughs> and um, I basically brought the, the evidence-based um, approach out of the, that that dark corner of the internet and to a little bit more towards the regular folks and the masses because apparently I'm slightly more palatable than Lyle in terms of just personality and delivery and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, Lyle in all his brilliance, he, <laughs> he has a way about him that, that is, uh, uh, maybe an acquired taste in certain aspects. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all have our own experiences where you might run into somebody who's got a great mind and they might have good things to tell, but there's just other aspects about them that make them very hard to deal with. I mean, I believe that there was a certain group of scientists that were brought over to the U.S. post-World War II from uh, Germany, we'll say. And, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of stigma associated with it. And you have to, what was it, Operation Paperclip, I want to say, but scrub up, polish the details. Um, and then, you know, take the knowledge for what it is and kind of uh, look the other way. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously we want to take uh, what works and what's effective and then present that to people. Um, but really, what, what was it that gave you an idea to run your own review and then uh, monetize it? Yeah, um, the idea came from spending time on the bodybuilding.com message boards. So um, back before Facebook exploded and then Instagram followed, and this was um, right around like 2009 or 2010-ish when, when everybody had Facebook finally. Before that, the way that people, in quotes, did social media was just milling around the forums, the message boards, the V-bulletin boards, uh, as we knew it back in the day. And so 
on the bodybuilding.com message boards, it was a very lively and, and highly populated community of people who were recreationally interested in physique culture. And just the conversations, the debates, the discussions were just really gripping, really engaging. Um, I had just uh, finished my master's degree a few years before hopping on the, the bodybuilding.com forums in 2003. And so during that time, there was really no such thing as a scientific basis for making claims or thinking we understand what we understand. It was only just observation, anecdote, what is the best looking or, or buffest dude saying? Let's listen to him and um, just take it from there. And so having come off of my graduate degree, I was just kind of fascinated by this whole idea of people building programs and making claims just sheerly based on what, what boiled down to gym locker room uh, gossip and stories and, and legend and, and lore and tradition. And sometimes legend, lore and tradition is valuable because it withstands the test of time and uh, some of it is is actually true. But the problem is it's usually half true and half um, just because. And, and so that's where the science comes in and helps people save a lot of time and energy and, and helps them not go through certain hoops and take certain unnecessary steps that would save them a bunch of time and resources and risk. And so that was the beauty of the evidence-based approach. We can take a look at the scientific literature and say, all right, cool. So you're taking branched chain amino acids. You're, you're supplementing with branched chain amino acids. Did you know that most high quality protein sources are somewhere between 18 all the way up to like 26% branched chain amino acids? And if you're getting enough protein in the diet, then supplementing with those extra branched chain amino acids is not going to do anything beyond just adding extra calories. And, and so being able to tell people that and get through to people's thick skulls about those things, initially they start off very resistant to the idea when they've had just, um, you know, habits and, and routines and just lore lodged into their minds. But when you get through to people, they go, oh my goodness, I don't have to put that supplement on my grocery list. I can cancel, you know, one extra thing from what I have to shell out for. And so that's, you know, the, a very long and winding way of, of answering your question of how did this start? It started on the bodybuilding.com message boards. And I saw the interest in the scientific basis of nutrition and physique culture. And I was able to spend, I want to say easily five, six, seven, sometimes eight hours a day answering questions on the bodybuilding.com message boards. And I thought to myself, you know, if I spent eight hours a day answering questions on this stuff, I probably shouldn't do that because A, I'll go broke. <laughs> and B, I could probably actually make kind of a career out of this <laughs> and, and do a better job. Right. And so I decided to answer those questions. And, and really, when you get into – um, knock down, drag out debates with people, you really start writing these 
500 to 1,000 word essays and you're citing sources and it's it's like a literal freaking article that you've got references at the end of it. And I'm thinking, you know what? I can actually write these articles and organize them well and do a much better and much more exhaustive job answering these questions in a monthly subscription. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm subscribed to the, the, the science journals and the nutrition journals and stuff. Why can't I make one and make it ridiculously cheap and just have the, the bodybuilding fans subscribe to it? And so I saw that this was being done with some sort of physical therapy slash physiotherapy um, monthly subscription of reviewing the physiotherapy and physical therapy research. And I'm like, you know what? If that thing exists in that space, then I can create one for the fitness and nutrition space. And so that's what I did. The physio thing, I don't remember what it was called anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. It just didn't last. And I launched my research review in 2008. I thought about it for a full 12 months before I launched it because I was afraid to fail with it. I was just you know, terrified of launching it and then having to sneak back into a corner and hide if it failed. Um, but I finally got the courage to launch it and it has been a success and um, it took the rest of the fitness industry about five years to copy me. And so, you know, starting about, you know, 2013, 2014, um, well, we, we've got uh, examine.com trickling in, we've got weightology trickling in, um, the mass research review trickling in. And then you got like a couple of, uh, more and my wife is, is funny, she's all, Alan, you know, eventually everybody's gonna have their own research review. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, cool, bring it on. Let's let's elevate the uh, the state of the game. Let's elevate the collective intelligence of of the field. And you know, if this is my contribution and my legacy, starting this research review thing in the fitness space, then all the better. If it makes people smarter and it gives people better results. So, yes, well, that's that's the winding question to your answer. Yeah, well, I mean, the the winding. Answer, answer to the question. question. <laughs> I understand you, Alan. Um, the why is so important, though, because if you think about what led to your creation of it, you have that really tight interface with the people who are asking the questions. So you know what's relevant, you know what's important. And a lot of times competitors will come along because they see that you've had commercial success with what you're doing and monetizing a research review. So they, oh, hey, we'll do that because there's money to be made. But they don't necessarily have that same level of deep insight as to why people are coming to you in the first place. I mean, obviously, Avatar has been knocked off probably dozens of times now. But at the same time, it doesn't really bother me anymore because once upon a time, I used to just like want to pull my hair out. But now I understand, wait a minute, like I'll see things come and go. There have been mm -hmm. things that people much larger of a personality than I am put out there that don't go anywhere. And the thing is, they thought it would be easy. They might thought they could make a quick, you know, few millions of dollars or whatever it happens mm -hmm. to be. Um, and then they realize, wait a minute, this is actually about helping people because yeah. ultimately that's what your research is doing because you have so many people that might've been like me when I was a kid who struggled and didn't know what to do and didn't know what the evidence-based approach was just making mistake after mistake. And maybe they wanna find a way to cut through all the bro science and cut through all the BS and start to have something that actually gives them substantial and meaningful results. 
Um, I'll tell you a funny story that you'll probably get a kick out of. And this also came from uh, the bodybuilding.com misc. Uh, once upon a time, <laughs> once upon a time on the misc, there was a guy named Ziz. And uh, if, yeah. if you're. Um, I've, I've repped him. I, I raise his, his uh, rep level as, as if anybody remembers the rep system, nagging and repping. Oh, I was yeah. a moderator. So oh, you were, you were a moderator. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, th- I mean. We are we are talking some like fitness history right now. Uh, so for people who have like lived in that world and and been around it, y'all get a kick out of this. Um, but the whole thing that's when keto started becoming a thing. Ziz was one of the first people to talk about doing keto to get shredded. And so me and several of my friends in college decided that for spring break we were all going to do keto so that way we could get ripped when we go to the beach. And the bad information that was getting put out there. Some of it was like, you can't gain body fat if you're on keto, right? That was something that was getting put out there. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to keto bulk. So I was just eating as much like cheese stuffed sausage and, you know, bacon omelets and peanuts, like just cramming it down, not tracking anything. This is really before I I found out about macros. Um, But yeah, I just started gaining weight. I was gaining a lot of weight. And I was convincing myself that it was all muscle. And uh, my, my friend uh, Jason, who will probably be watching this, uh, commented that was the summer that Mark turned into a refrigerator. <laughs> but, but yeah, you did so, the you did the so-called dreamer bulk. I did. I successfully completed a dreamer bulk, uh, much yeah. to the chagrin of my arteries, more than likely. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, like, so many people have experienced that uh, when it comes to different types of diets where something sounds interesting or appealing or maybe it makes, like, some kind of logical sense if you don't understand any of the science behind it. And uh, if it's well-marketed and somebody who's really ripped, really shredded, they look like what you want to look like is pushing it, that's kind of the state of the industry and how it's been for a long time. Because even though within our world of evidence-based, we just assume everybody knows what a macro is. You talk to a random person on the street, go to the DMV, talk to the two people next to you in line, see what they tell you about macros. Yeah. 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 No, no clue. It's a programming language or something. Oh yeah. We, we've definitely got work to do on that front, but I mean, work is obviously a huge part of finding success in anything. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about from the uh, business side of things, what has been some of the, or what is the biggest challenge that you've ever had to overcome in your own business? Easily the biggest challenge was my drinking career, which began, I want to say, um, like maybe 15 years ago and, uh, ended abruptly like four years ago. And so it began kind of casually, you know, you, you start drinking. Um, this was in my early thirties. And so it just kept building. I had the classic alcoholic, um, progression of drinking more and more and more and relying on alcohol as um, a band-aid for stress and anxiety and even using it as um, just a a tool for everything from grieving to celebration to just escaping the 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 moment and um, it was just uh, just a really bad progression and people who have developed alcohol use disorder. They all have different stories 
as to how it got bad and how they got addicted. And so, um, yeah, I, I developed an addiction to alcohol and that was definitely the, the biggest monster that I had to face career wise. And I hit a rock bottom in 2018 where I essentially in a nutshell, train wrecked my life and my career. And um, I just had to rebuild it from that point. And when I hit that rock bottom and I made the decision that, okay, I need to take alcohol completely out of the equation of my life. Um, that was a, a hardcore commitment in the sense that some people can cut back. I chose to cut out and uh, it was the right decision and it's been a good decision. And I can see the contrast in my life in every department um, without the drinking versus with the drinking, because I, I just developed my, my drinking to a point where it was just so much and so much is different for everybody. Right. When, when I tell uh, when I tell some people that, yeah, I was drinking like up to a bottle and a half of wine a night, they're like, oh, well, that's not bad. I hit that by noon, you know, and then just kind of continue from there. And I'm like, oh, boy. Yeah, that's that's gnarly. Um, but for me, uh, consuming an extra thousand calories a day of, of wine versus not um, has been night and day in terms of my uh, career, my relationships, both business and personal. Um and my performance work-wise and, and, and just the way that I'm able to conduct my life as husband, father, family member, friend, um, entrepreneur, it's just been night and day. So that was the biggest thing that I had to overcome. And uh, I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't recommend uh, my, my route for overcoming it, just bottoming out and nearly uh destroying everything in your life to realize that okay need to change uh, a specific habit here drastically right did you hit the point of physical dependency with your drinking alan ah that's a tough question man uh, but i would have to say i did hit a point where the following day um i would have shaky hands like i i i did hit a point where i noticed that when I'm trying to take a picture of something with my phone or take a video of something, it would be shaky when I'm, you know, trying to steady that phone. Um, so that's a sign of, of, of a certain degree, maybe a low degree of physical dependence. Um, there are certain um, behavioral indicators of alcohol use disorder or classic alcoholism where um, I would go to the grocery store just solely to get the next batch of alcohol and nothing else. Um, and this would be a frequent thing through the week. Um, and yeah, just really gnarly, brutal stuff like that in my mind anyway. And, and for some people, uh, that's not that bad. That's not big of a deal. Uh, not that big of a deal, but um, in retrospect, yeah, very classic signs of ticking off all the boxes of alcohol use disorder, just sneaking stuff, hiding stuff. Um, trips to the grocery store multiple times a week for just alcohol. It's like, damn. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's huge to be able to overcome that too. Cause I mean, you've been sober now for how long? A little over four years, a little over four years straight. And, and 
I want to I want to emphasize because well I'm kind of proud of it, but two it's it's, it's I kind of can't believe it. I have not had a single drink, not, haven't had a single slip up, haven't had a, a any sort of relapse in four years, and I used to have the equivalent of like 10, 15 drinks a day for, gosh, um, close to five years straight leading up to that. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a tremendous change in your life. And um, obviously alcohol was a huge part of your life. And so when you made that decision, that decision happened on one day. So mm -hmm. were there times early on when you found that it was a struggle and what was it that helped you over, overcome that, right? And resist the urge to go back to what you were so comfortable within? I think, um, I think that if, if the, uh, the trauma is big enough and the, the shame is deep enough, then it scares you straight, so to speak. And so um, just sort of the handling of, of the combination of public shame, losing friends, losing business partners, losing endorsements, and just basically seeing 25 years of career building just collapse. Then you go, all right, the decision has to be hardcore, has to be drastic, and um, it has to be permanent. So in my case, it was very clear that that's it. That's that's freaking it. I've I've been in essence kind of handcuffed to the to this master, to this freaking liquid, this substance. I've been you know enslaved to it in in many ways, and I just decided nope, no thanks. Taking these handcuffs off and walking away. Nope, you don't own me. Goodbye. That's it. Yeah, something that a lot of people are handcuffed to, and what I want to talk about next is the obesity crisis. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't really think about the stats because you have so many new normals that we run into. And so I believe it was in 2017, we were around a 42% obesity rate. That's 42% of the country in the US has now uh, reached the qualifications for being seen as clinically obese. Um, yep. it, it only went up um, at the start of 2020 is the last time I can get data for uh, what the CDC reports. Um, and then you look at average weight, and I think it's about, according to the American Psychological Association, 42% uh, of people reported that they had gained unwanted weight. And of the 42% of people that had reported that, the average weight gain was 29 pounds. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you're looking at 43% of Americans gaining 29 pounds on average on top of what was roughly a 42% obesity rate heading into it. So things are getting worse and worse and worse. And what I'm wondering, because like I know I had my moment, right, when I was a kid and I didn't want to be overweight anymore. I, I, I think I saw I was technically obese as a, as a child when I made that decision to stop. Um, and I had my own moment. But that's kind of what I'm wondering because uh, in our culture, we've started to try to sugarcoat everything, right? And so we've hit the point where people can look at somebody who has a condition that's going to negatively impact their health and cut years off of their life and being obese. I think the average obese person has around like $1,800 a year of additional medical expenses that they can expect to pay. So it's not just health. I mean, it's impacting finances. If people are already having a hard time coming up in life, it's only making things harder. But at the same time, um, you know, you, you don't want to like shame anyone, right? So, you know, God forbid somebody feel bad about themselves. It's much better that they have a, a harder life than they need to have. 
instead of having that little emotional uh, wake-up call when they can start making that change because obviously from our experience, what we've seen looking at literature, working with hundreds of thousands of customers, losing weight, following simple approaches, um, it can be changed. Um, so I guess that, that is a very long winded way of asking the simple question. Um, what do you see as kind of being a catalyst that could help wake up Americans to lose this excess weight that they're carrying around? Yeah, that is a huge question and a huge can of worms. Uh, the obesity rates were actually basically plateaued for a, at least a decade prior to the pandemic hitting. So they're plateaued at this high level. And then the pandemic hit, and then we can only just begin to imagine how they just began to spike up again. And um, just observationally, I know a lot of people personally put on a whole lot of weight during the pandemic. Um, a lot of the people in the fitness industry, uh, practitioners kind of saw it coming. And so they safeguarded against it, kind of scrambled to figure out, okay, how am I going to get my workouts in? Um, how am I going to get my home gym set up to weather this storm? And uh, I, I was one of those folks. And thankfully I had quit drinking already before the pandemic hit. Um, otherwise, if I had not quit training, I probably would have just went down. This is the perfect time to just tank up, you know. Um, so I think that solving this obesity problem in the midst of it having spiked up so high, I, I think that they're uh, – wow, wow. I, I, I don't know the solution to, to the obesity problem um, only because – I. I have my ideas of how we can possibly make a dent and it's more like um, initiating a, a, a butterfly effect that could spread virally. And, and I'll get to that in a sec, but I really believe that um, the obesity epidemic is driven by many, many, many things, but the two things that people overlook that are powerful vectors are the rampant misinformation spread by quacks with very large platforms so it's spread by people saying oh, it's not calories it's insulin so therefore mm -hmm. you can just grab all of the the foods that you want that aren't carby and then just go to town because it's not about calories it's about hormones well that's a load of load of crap and that's what gets people stumbling over their own two feet and and just um, going in circles with yo-yo dieting, et cetera. So the minute that we can get past somehow the constant waves of misinformation uh, and help the general public gain a modicum of scientific literacy or just basic nutritional education as far as it relates to body weight and body composition, like most of the general public, they keep hearing that calorie counting doesn't work. Calorie counting doesn't work. Diets don't work. So just forget about it. Forget about it. Okay, where do you go from there? You start looking for magic foods. You start looking for magic diets. And you start looking for um, magic bullets and programs that promise weight loss 
without having to focus on on anything having to do with calories okay while that's fine and dandy people still need to understand that even though calorie counting doesn't work for a lot of people there's still an energy balance equation that you have to be able to approach and overcome whether or not you're counting calories in quotes and so i think that um the solution is to educate people on the facts and then help people find sustainable approaches um, that they can uh, actually enjoy it and live with in the long term. And I think that's that's the huge challenge, Mark. It's like some people will do very well with a high degree of micromanagement and some people will not do very well with it. They'll do well with um, a, a more qualitative approach. And the, yet there are other people who will do great seasonally with the, the approach they take. Like, um, for example, I know people in the physique culture area who really get on top of, of their of their micromanagement as they um, prepare for getting cut or getting shredded or competing. Then they're they're really kind of tracking every last detail and then they let up on that in the off season and it's just kind of a cyclical thing. Right. Um, and so I think that everybody's is so different in regard to how they can successfully approach diet, but we have to contend with so much misinformation with the general public thinking there are foods that burn belly fat and thinking there are foods that get you fat and foods that get you lean and uh, from a, a pragmatic and practical perspective, with some foods, yes, that is the case, but they don't understand the big picture of energy balance, and they're being told by quacks that calories are not a thing. So I, I, I don't know how to solve the obesity problem other than writing a book and saying, damn it, we, we know how to do this. There's scientific consensus amongst the amongst the the evidence-based practitioners in the industry who are getting people in shape and helping people lose weight and body fat day in and day out um 100 of the time or close to it we know how to do this here's how it's done write a book put it out there that's really the if like a billion evidence-based practitioners wrote that book and put it out there and marketed their stuff amazingly then i think we could make a dent but for now, I wrote a book, I put it out there. Um, I have a, a small niche audience and I'm hoping that there is a butterfly effect uh, amongst the practitioners towards their clients that would trickle out towards the masses. So yeah, unfortunately my solution for the obesity epidemic is, all right, evidence-based practitioners get the word out. But right. I don't know. I don't know the best way to do that. Do you have any ideas, Mark? I have some ideas, and obviously the biggest one is word of mouth. And so the proof is in the pudding. So when you practice what you preach, and people see what you do, they see the kind of physique that you've achieved, and they ask how you did it. That's usually where these conversations start at dinner tables during the holidays. Uh, people see seeing is believing. I guess is a good way of putting it. And so then if you have a platform 
um, like for instance, like Avatar, right? That makes it very easy to stick to long-term and simple to follow. There you go, right? You put that in front of us, just do what I do, right? And so you can, you start to have the, the commercial counterpoint to the system that's already in place. And I see what may be unintentional, but it, it's a synergy between all the nutrition quackery that exists and the pharmaceutical industry. Because right now, the amount of money that's spent on insulin to treat type 2 diabetes in the country uh, is approaching a trillion dollars annually. I mean, you're looking at like close to a 30th of our GDP is being spent on insulin. That's amazing. That's a a lot of money to be made by keeping people overweight, unhealthy, and dependent. And so then, well, what's the counterpoint to keeping people overweight, unhealthy, and dependent? What we do, right? We're the bad guys to them because what we do actually makes a positive impact on people and helps them break free of those chains. Because just like you were chained to alcoholism, so many people are chained to dependency on food, right? They're chained to their to their bodies. Because I remember when I was overweight, my body was not something that enabled me. It was something that restricted me. You know, I can't tell you how many times as a kid I wanted to go try to climb on a rock wall, but my body was just too heavy and my hands were too weak. And I I feel like I would make a fool of myself or embarrass myself. I remember um, going to a, I mean, I hated taking my shirt off when I was little. I hated it, hated it, hated it. Um, But I went to a lake and I was trying to learn how to wakeboard, but my body was too heavy and my arms were too weak. I just kept getting mouthfuls of water, getting dragged across the surface of the lake and the girls that I had a crush on sitting in the boat, I'm just like floating there like a useless potato in my own mind anyway in the water. Um, but, you know, it, it is tough. And we definitely um, are kind of the David in this David versus Goliath fight. But the thing is, I think it's a fight that's worthwhile in having. And there's a reason why we're all put on this planet. And um, I don't know if you've ever read any Marcus Aurelius or not. But one of the things that he wrote about I read his quotes. I haven't read um what is it, meditations? What what's his big word? That's the big um, one, is meditations. But he talks yeah. about um like think about like every morning it's like sleeping feels good, laying in your bed feels good, but did you come to this earth to lay in your bed? No. Love it. And so then you think about what your real purpose is. And I see a lot of that in what you do. Because again, like you saw the need when you're on those message boards and bodybuilding.com because there's there's a hunger for it. And um, I really do think that by people like us having these conversations, putting them out there for other people to listen to, inviting people to engage with us so they can learn more, they can start to take control of things. And right, uh, you know, the SWEAT acronym for the podcast, strength, right? It takes strength to overcome alcoholism, right? It takes wisdom, the wisdom that you learned along the way. It takes energy and probably giving up alcohol gave you a lot more of that, (laughs) Um, You had the right attitude because having that rock bottom wake up call definitely keeps it there. And you've been at this for 25 freaking years. Yeah. You know, that's time. And now, you know, you're a guy who a lot of people know about in this industry, but it took those principles to get you where you are. And um, I really think that those principles, which are attainable by every human on this planet, when applied to good causes, right, that are helpful for other people. They're logical. You can understand the reason behind them and easily share that with others. Uh, that, that's when we're really going to see a difference because, you know, obesity sucks. As someone who's had to live with it, it's it's no good. 
right? I grew yeah. up in the deep South. Like we're the, the obesest of them all in a very obese country. Um, but I can tell you that people don't want to live like that because it's inherently limiting. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. It just takes, just takes some education, man. Right education, right foundation and uh, getting the word out and somehow dealing with the, the, the counter <laughs> miseducation from, from uh, the quack factions of, of the fitness and health industries. It's, it's a battle. It it's, is. It's, going to be about yeah it is and there's another thing too um and this is just something i picked up in life that i think is very helpful but it's like the difference between being committed to a person versus being attached to an outcome so like when you're having a conversation with somebody who has been infected by bad information coming from uh you know, whether it's big pharma or big fitness whatever you want to call it it's just bad ideas but they're catchy mm -hmm. and everybody talks about them so they're used to hearing them um, but cop, when you're combating that, if you really are committed to helping that person, you speak to them in a different way. Cause it's not just like you're trying to win an argument. You know, if somebody's like, oh, you know, carbs are bad, right? So that's right. something that you hear all the time and mm -hmm. you could beat them over the head with six ways to Sunday with any kind of study that you want to, that would disprove that point. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. attached to an outcome of like, I'm going to prove this person wrong. But if you're committed to them, like Alan, just give me an example, right? You know, you're committed to helping me out as a as a person, right? I could be every listener on this show um, that has heard time and time again, well, you know, hormones are what causes weight gain, carbs cause insulin response, therefore carbs are bad. If I get rid of them, I will be good. You know, carbs are the enemy. It's big agriculture and big carbs that's holding everyone back. Right. You know, you know, <laughs> copyright Pfizer 2022, like whatever. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, really want to help that person out. Like what information would you present them that carbs are not the enemy? Goodness, uh, there is. Well, we can look at populations and the examples are really kind of in your face. The leanest some of the leanest populations on the planet are the Asian populations and the vast majority of their diet is carbohydrate. <laughs> not only that, but it's white rice and white noodles. <laughs> it's not brown rice and quinoa. And so, um, we, we can look at populations and then we can go from observational data to experimental data. And there is just, plenty of and by the way can you hear me okay oh perfectly perfectly fine okay yeah. cool, cool there's plenty of experimental data looking at the right variables and setting things up properly to examine whether or not carbs are the culprit in either fat gain or hindering of fat loss so in the vein of um experiments that test carbs for fat gain we have just a ton of overfeeding experiments comparing fat overfeeds with carb overfeeds. And it's always the fat overfeeds that have this tendency to cause greater storage of fat. And then we've got the hypocaloric or the, or the dieting studies that properly compare the, the two different groups. They, they match calories, they match protein between the groups but they just test a higher versus lower amount of carbs. Sometimes they, they test a, a ketogenic level of carbs versus a non-ketogenic level of carbs and everything in between. And 
every single time in every single controlled feeding study, as long as the calories are equated and protein is equated, you can put both groups on, on the diets and there's no difference in body fat loss. So we know this from a convergence of many lines of evidence that carbs are not the bad guy. What tends to be the bad guy is a combination of refined carbs, fats, salt, sugar, all balled up together in these ultra processed um, junk foods, basically. Right. And there's still room for that within the diet. But uh, people don't realize that the reason why these hyper palatable, ultra processed um, packaged snack foods and desserts are, are an issue is because they are energy dense and they facilitate this sort of passive overconsumption phenomenon where people just eat too much overall energy by the end of the day, by the end of the week. So it doesn't all fall on the shoulders of carbohydrate. We're back to just, okay, what's causing people to overeat calories overall. And then there, there is an insidious, um, I don't want to call it a movement, but an idea that is propagated by well-meaning folks, including, gosh, including some of my colleagues who have um, their various uh, worldviews that, that differ from mine, which is fine. But the concept of obesity not being a choice and erroneously setting this up as a binary concept. Is obesity a choice or is it not a choice? So I would have to disagree with the, the premise of that question, even in the beginning. Because I don't think it's 100% a choice or 100% not a choice. I don't, it, there, there is a spectrum. And so there's nuance to that. And I even think that even in the arc of, of someone's obesity development, the choice or no choice part really happens en route to obesity. So in certain socioeconomic and educational circumstances, um, it can very well be the case that somebody didn't have any say in their becoming obese or they're, they're getting to a state of obesity because they may have grown up in a family that uh, was just overeating and the parents are feeding the infants, toddler, you know, adolescence all the way through. It's been an overfeeding extravaganza. And they were just unaware of that. So they were in a highly obesogenic food environment from birth. Okay, so now they're adults and now they're obese. And we can um, pretty accurately say, oh, well, that was not necessarily a choice in that case. Um, and it, it, it's very, it draws kind of a parallel with starvation and countries that just don't have enough food, basic resources, and there is starvation going on there. So was starvation a choice for those folks? Well, definitely not. And on the other side of the coin, if your environment is just so with the variables lined up just right, then you may not necessarily have a choice in the development of obesity. Okay. So with that out of the way, telling people with obesity that you have no choice in, in your state of obesity. You have no agency. You have no autonomy. You have no control over getting out of that state of obesity. I think that's a problem when you universalize that. 
And I think it's a problem. And my colleagues who are physicians tend to ha tend to uh, embrace the, oh, obesity is not a choice. We'll just medicate you if it comes down to it mm -hmm. type of uh, type of approach. And, you know, I have some really smart um, friends who who have that position. And I'm thinking there are parallels between telling obese people that they have no choice and no agency and no autonomy. It's similar to telling somebody who's broke that, you know what, you have no choice in your, in your, in your brokenness. You have no choice in whether you're going to succeed in life or in business because your environment will just shut you down every time. And not only that, man, but uh, your genetics <laughs> interacting with the environment are going to keep you poor. So just kind of forget about it. We'll see if we can ask the government to send you some checks, see if that works out. And so um, there are parallels between that and telling people with obesity that they don't have a choice. I think that it is a case by case situation for sure. Yeah. And everything that you just talked about there really seems like control mechanisms. Because if you tell people that they don't have a choice and they have to do what they're told and they were always it's like almost like a caste system right where you're born is just where you are like if you are poor and you're born poor well you are a poor person right uh not you know you're currently experiencing being broke but that's a temporary state and can be changed it's the same thing too with people who are obese right oh you're temporarily experiencing obesity but there's things you can do about it but again, yeah. if a doctor is going to tell their patient who's on XYZ prescriptions that are getting billed to their medical insurance, <laughs> so on and so forth, right? You know, dollars to be made there. Or the doctor could say, hey, you have a choice here. Let me teach you about counting macros, right? You know, you're going to get on the system. You're going to count your macros. We're going to see how your body responds, adjust them accordingly until you're not obese anymore. And then throughout that process, that person would then start to understand that, oh, I have this a philosophical approach to eating that I can have in my pocket. Just like the competitors that you mentioned, they go through cyclical periods where they'll get ready for a photo shoot or a bodybuilding competition where they are lean. And then they just kind of like, yeah, fall off the rails. But they always know internally that they can come back to that because they understand what works. And so the thing is, once this becomes just a household concept where it's like, oh, well, if you don't want your plants to wilt, you put water on them. If you don't want to be obese, scan your food, count your macros, make right, the adjustments, right. right? So like these things, they're extremely addressable by incredibly cheap solutions. Yeah. And, and you know what? Nobody is saying that the degree of difficulty is going to be the same for everybody mm -hmm. because everybody has different genetic predispositions and everybody has different environmental factors at work, just interplaying to make things very difficult or relatively easy. And so nobody's saying that it's all gonna be the same for everybody, but it's just like, it's just like the poverty to, um, you know, uh, financial fitness uh, scenario. Some people are gonna have it easier. Some people are gonna have it a lot tougher, but telling people that they have no choice in the change towards improvement is uh in my opinion very counterproductive and 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 very dangerous and so um yeah and and to your point about 
about getting to know the values, the nutritional values of foods, whether it's calories or whether it's grams or whether it's both. I think that regardless of what route people take as far as tracking or gaining an awareness of their intake goes, I think that everybody should at least give it a shot in trying to gain the awareness of gram values and calorie values of the foods that they consume in the portions that they consume it. Because when they go through that boot camp learning period, you'll always carry it with you as a skill. And then you have the option to tighten up and go back to it, or you have the option to just kind of eyeball things and, and ride off into the sunset. But I think it's an extremely valuable skill to know those values. Oh, it's a wake up call. Cause I mean, imagine somebody who's, uh, they need to eat, let's say 120 grams a day on average of carbs in order to achieve the right amount of caloric deficit to lose weight at a sane rate. Then they scan a honey bun and they see that honey bun has 70 grams of carbs in it. And it's, that's okay. So congratulations, your little honey bun snack from the vending machine took out over half of your carb allotment for the day. Do you think that's going to help you stick to your caloric deficit? Uh, is that going to make that process easier or harder? And so people start to understand what energy density is, and they'll start to understand why things that have that mixture of uh, sugar, fat, salt, these highly processed things that are hyper palatable um, are contributing to obesity, right? They're not the cause of it, but when people mindlessly are consuming these energy dense snacks that put them in a chronic state of caloric surplus, they gain weight and maybe they'll go on a period where they they find one of these um, bro science diets that's put, pitched by the fitness industry. Um, usually the ones that have any kind of effect are just extreme caloric restriction with a supplement, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, maybe we'll have some, uh, some was it CLA, right? Conjugated linoleic acid. If I need to lose fat, I need to take this pill because people have been oh, taught boy. that if you wanna do something like achieve fat loss, what do I add? Right, what I would need to add to what I'm doing in forms of a supplement in order to lose fat. Oh, no, no, honey, not at all. <laughs> That's not how it works. So what you need to do obviously comes down to the food, right? The food is everything. Getting the right macros for yourself as it relates to your goals and what you're trying to do, like that's really it. And so, I mean, like just from what you've seen, um, like obviously there are supplements that have efficacy, but would you say that there's anything when it comes to fat loss specifically that's a supplement that makes any sense to take? Fat loss wise, honestly, no. Um, you can quibble about uh, some of the um, appetite suppressive and thermogenic benefits of, of, of coffee and tea. But um, for you to rely on that, you're relying on really only a small effect. And of course, you know, we've got the new wave of um, obesity drugs coming out claiming like 15%, 10, 15% uh, weight loss capabilities. Uh, fine and dandy, you know, that that can be, gosh, and some people up to 20 pounds, maybe 30 pounds. But um, even relying on medication for that I have my uh, I have my doubts about. I have my skepticism about, and 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 I think it sort of diminishes a a holistic understanding 
of how to transform the body. Um, there's very few fit people, truly fit and healthy people maintaining um, a weekly shot of semaglutide, for example, <laughs> you know, um, I think that there are hurdles that that folks can get over that don't necessarily involve medication. Um, but that's my my optimism as, as far as what I have been capable um, to help clients out with and what I see day in and day out with what the evidence based fitness practitioner community is able to do. And also, to your point about just awareness of the macronutrient composition of stuff, I think that's freaking incredible. The technology that, you know, we, we have access to now you're talking about scanning a honey bun and then having the apparatus be able to give you the values instantaneously. I think that's, that's amazing, dude. Um, I, if you've got that available, then Hey, hallelujah. And get ready to, to, for the copycats to come in. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, once upon a time, I believe if you wanted to look up the nutritional value of anything, you had to pull out a book, right? And then you'd look up the item and you'd have the, the layout there, but then you would write it down on a piece of paper. Because I know when I first started counting macros, I did it on printer paper. I just put little lines and I had my column for protein, fat, and carbs. So I'd jot down the item and then yeah. jot down PCF for whatever it was. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, things have obviously come a very, very, very long way since then. Um, and, you know, we, we've helped people drop over 3 million pounds over at Avatar, uh, which is a big number. But the thing is, in the time that we help people lose 3 million pounds, people put on more than that, right? So, you know, we're kind of like, – it's like climbing up a muddy hill is what mm -hmm. it feels like sometimes. So, you know, you're putting this energy, but you're still kind of sliding backwards. Um, yeah. So there's there's a lot of work to be done. But again, um, like Nietzsche, you know, we're talking about Marcus Aurelius. We're talking about Nietzsche, and this mm -hmm. is a sweat podcast, right? So like, don't let a <laughs> don't judge a book by its cover. But one yeah. of his quotes yeah. that I really liked was, "If you know your why, you can make it through any how." Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a it's a mm -hmm. powerful, powerful, powerful quote. Um, but the thing is, like, if you love people, if you care about people which is a huge part of being a human, like that that's a big why, right? And if you really right. care about right. people and you felt similar struggles to what they're feeling, you wanna teach them how to overcome it. I mean, financial literacy is just as important as nutritional literacy. Because if somebody is um, poor, right? How do you change that mindset from being poor to just broke? Okay, well, maybe I need to understand like what are the, the properties of money, right? You know, what's, fungibility, recognizability, scarcity, these things. What are the basics of investment? And they might sound like these unapproachable words at first, just like, oh, what's a macronutrient? That's, mm -hmm. se that's several syllables that you're throwing at somebody they might have never heard before. But at the same time, it's like, oh, it's the building blocks of all food, protein, carbs, fat. You can turn around a label on anything, right? Because one of the few things the government did right you know, is put, have food labels put on everything. So you can yeah. see uh, exactly what the macro composition of food is. And, that, mm -hmm. and that's available, but most people, they'll look at the front of a wrapper, right? That's where all the marketing is. The back is where the important stuff is. And then yeah. once you learn how to read a food label, it's like a superpower. Right. And and just sort of mindset things, sort of buzzwords that are thrown around a lot in, in the industry, diets don't work. So this is a big one with the... I want to say the, the, the health at every size or the body positivity... Um, 
types, you know, um, that whole idea. Diets don't work. Look at the stats. You know, X amount of people gain all their weight back and more, you know, X percentage, different, different figures are thrown around. And even when you look at the scientific literature on the effectiveness of employing dietitians, or, you know, when a dietitian is, is, uh, used, um, in a, in a weight loss study. Oh, okay. Well, the, the results are pretty dismal there. Uh, the percentages of, uh, weight regain are not a whole lot less than when people just try to do it on their own. But I would counter by saying, all right, you, you take the, the typical hospital dietitian, ask them how much protein is optimal for a weight loss program. How many of them are going to even know what to tell you? <laughs> They're just going to look at you confused and hand you a, a cup of jello. <laughs> right. Know? And then let me ask you this, this question. How important is getting protein right? in a fat loss program it's extremely as a mother effort is, is is what the answer is and you know that's the tip of the iceberg and so anybody who says diets don't work all right um how much protein does does somebody need if they want to embark on a fat loss program and what sort of caloric deficit would you put them on depending on their starting status and how would you marry that with a training program Nobody freaking knows. A few people do. And the few people who do need to somehow get to the public. Mark, we need your help, my man. I guess that's what, that's what we're doing right here. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, we're, we're having this conversation. Obviously, like I'm going to be blasting it out to my email list. So like everyone who's ever subscribed to Avatar is going to be getting a little inbox uh, or uh, their inbox will be pinged with this, you know, unfortunately spam filters are a thing. So that's going to happen to a chunk of them. Um, but we're going to be casting that net. We're going to be putting this out on, uh, all the different podcast channels. So if you listen on Spotify, Apple podcast, you name it, it'll be there. Uh, we'll be on right. Ibble, my friend, uh, Raymond's app. Um, so I, I'd like to get him on this, uh, podcast one of these days. Cause it was, it was funny. Um, this is actually our second attempt Alan and I recording this podcast the first time we were having audio issues, audio issues related to a software update, but Alan made the joke that like, we need to get like a NASA scientist to come and help. Well, uh, Raymond was the head, the head engineer for the international space station. So we literally had a NASA scientist, uh, get our audio fixed. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was just one of those hilarious serendipity kind of things. Um, but I do believe that this information is going to resonate. And it's just like we said, uh, when people start sharing this kind of stuff and they share, this, for instance, this conversation that we've had today with their friends, light bulbs are going to start going off, right? Because there's going to be concepts that they may have never even heard before that start to click and resonate. But like once upon a time, like, you, you know, I had bad concept, <laughs> misinformation, disinformation, whatever you want to call it, click, like you can't gain weight doing keto, right? Somebody told me that. And they started talking about like just I don't, I don't even remember what it was, but there was like some kind of bro science that was spun into um, a semi scientific format that seemed plausible. But at the time, I didn't understand enough to where I got duped by it. And I put on a lot of weight and had a terrible rugby season as a result. I just cramped a lot. Like you probably tell me like uh, the reason why I would be cramping so much, like trying to do keto and running around and sweating a lot. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure the electrolyte balance was completely thrown off. Um, yeah. 
you know, I, I learned what a total body cramp was. That's Ooh. not fun. When like literally even your face cramps. Like I had my face nice. cramp. I thought I was going to die. It was, it was bad. And like my teammates were laughing because they thought I was just playing around. And then like somebody was like trying to pour pickle juice. I'm on the ground like contorting. It's like my fingers are cramping. My face is cramping. And they're trying to like pour pickle juice in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing. Uh, hopefully it happened like 10 years ago before everybody would just record it and put it up online. Thank you. Thank the Lord, Alan. Thank the Lord. It's uh, That was actually more than 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, just thinking about how far phone technology has come in the past 10 years even is, is amazing. I think what the iPhone came out in 2007, I want to say. And uh, between iPhone 1 and now we have like the ability to stream 4K from a mobile device. You know, yeah. it's like the old saying, um, if the Library of Alexandria hadn't burned down, uh, Columbus would have been landing on the moon, right? Mm. But now, really, every person has access to almost all information in their pocket at all times. But at the same time, like, you are dealing with um, gatekeepers, right? Gatekeepers of narrative. And so that's the people that we're really doing battle with are the gatekeepers of narrative when it comes to fitness and nutrition, Right. Because, again, there's a lot more money to be made in people being unhealthy and dependent on systems like uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry than there is in just people being healthy for the people who are the gatekeepers. Because, again, if you think about that trillion dollars a year that's getting spent on insulin, what if that trillion dollars a year was getting invested into things like um, fusion reactors, right, things that could make energy more abundant and cheaper and more accessible because um, this is just another sidebar concept that I really think everyone needs to understand is that everything that you engage with in your life, whether it's, you know, this microphone, a pencil, your T-shirt, uh, your car, your air conditioning, everything is an expression of energy and the energy that existed that went into all the different processes that either extracted it from the ground, put it together, you name it, the energy is what made it economically available to be a part of your life. And so when energy gets turned off and energy becomes less abundant, all the things that are around you that were made possible by energy aren't going to get replaced or they won't be there in the future. So when people start talking about energy, and again, like my position on this isn't like, uh, you know, a left wing, right wing kind of thing. It's just, let's talk about reality, right? If you want to transition away from fossil fuels, realize that roughly 5% of the world's energy production right now comes from renewables, 5%. So 95% of everything that is critical for the existence of human civilization is related to uh, natural gas, oil, and coal, 95%. So if you cut all those off, well, the entire human population is going to be trying to figure it out with Five percent of the stuff that they're used to having access to. Aren't we seeing that right now? Aren't we seeing the the, Europe. the uh, yeah. adverse consequences of of that right now? It's like um, I, I'm no expert on this, but seems like a bad freaking idea to jump the gun with this. It is. I mean, if you want to replace something or transition, have a one to one swap. Right. Have the technology ready, have the infrastructure ready and start and phase things. But don't just dump. Um, Alan, are you're you're in California, right? I'm in California. That's right. 
Okay, so uh, my understanding is that there is, and this is just like the latest piece of California news, is that uh, gas-powered heaters, gas-powered stoves, anything that's gas-powered is supposed to get phased out by, what, 2030? Supposedly, I hear that and I go, well, the insane folks running this place are at it again because it just, uh, yeah, I'm just super skeptical about that whole approach. Yeah, um, I, I think it's insane, but hey, man, uh, everybody's got their opinions, their lay person opinion. I've got I've got my lay person opinion. It's really funny. Um, I, 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 I follow this page on Instagram called Shelby's and Hellcats, Hellcats and Shelby's. <laughs> and every time, you know, a new car company like like uh, Dodge put up their their electric powered um, Challenger, I believe it is. And it's got this fake revving sound. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is how clueless people are. It's like they they know that folks want to preserve the the gas-powered stuff to the point where they produce a fake engine sound. It's like, oh man, this is this is really kind of crazy. And I'm seeing the 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 users of that page just pile on and say, oh my God, no. No, not Dodge. No, <laughs> no, no. It's like not you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I don't know what the solution is, but I'm seeing what's going on, and I'm thinking this seems like a bad idea. Yeah, but again, it, it kind of comes back to control because, again, like um, if only a handful of people are wealthy enough to be able to afford the scarce resources, right? Like if you only have electric cars, because poor people aren't going to be able to buy a Tesla. Right. That's like one of the most mm, tone deaf kind of things somebody could say when you're like entering into a recession is like, oh, we can't afford gas. Just get a Tesla. Right. Like, oh, but, you, you know, 16 to 80 K lying around. Blam. Yeah, no problem. It's like, well, if you are a government insider and have some sort of company that's effectively subsidized by taxpayer dollars and you don't have to worry about being competitive within the free market. Sure, you know, go for it. But that's just not the story for most people. But again, like what I want people to really pursue and be a champion of is logic, critical thinking, and understanding the why behind the what. And so if we're going to do things like, um, you know, let, let's say that man-made climate change is a huge problem, right? That's the foundation. Well, mm -hmm. if you want to move away from things that emit carbon, think about what's available and then think about what we're not doing. Right. So one of the most abundant sources of energy is obviously nuclear. It's, you know, your, your emission there is uh, water vapor, essentially. And then when it comes to radioactive waste, most of it with modern reactors can be recycled and made into more energy. And then beyond that, uh, we have this thing called the Frank Irving Center in Austin. It's where the basketball is played for UT. You could fit all of the nuclear waste that's ever been created in the history of nuclear reactors inside of that basketball stadium. Mm. And that's it, right? No other environmental impact, but that's not what we're moving towards. I think it's Diablo Canyon was like uh, California's last nuclear reactor. It's getting decommissioned. So interesting. It's just like the, the action does not line up with the words. And so that's something that you should always look out for. It's just like uh, you might have a, um, uh, influential doctor who has a TV show where they talk about obesity, right? And you look at, well, you know, what are their actions 
Do they line up with their words? What are they personally doing? You know, and just kind of start to see what's happening. So I think that a hugely important thing is for people to be open to discussing these issues without this kind of uh, prejudicial malice towards folks with a, a different opinion. Mm-hmm. I think that um, if people can come together and and talk things out without slinging personal shots and labeling folks, putting them in boxes and just dichotomizing everybody as you're either with me or you're a piece of shit. <laughs> um, I think that that's an important first step. Um, this, you know, my scope being in the nutrition world and not only that, but just being in the, in the science-based nutrition world, one of the major requirements, the major premises of progress is to be open <laughs> to, um, learning new things, be open to changing, adjusting your position according to the evidence. And I think that if folks in the realm that, that we're talking about right now in energy are open to going where the evidence leads, I think that that would be a big step. But I think that ideology and just stubborn dogmatism and who knows, commercial interests complicate the whole damn thing. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a big mess, it seems. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And again, like as energy becomes more expensive, so does everything else. And you start to have supply chain problems. And the way that this loosely connects back to the topic of nutrition, because again, this is not necessarily the direction most people probably expected this to go. But (laughs) the way that it connects back is price and availability and diversity of options will be diminished for many people. They're going to start to notice the grocery store carries less items and the things that you buy cost more. So if you're stuck on the idea that in order to be healthy, you have to only buy organic and just get like fresh produce and have like the rare berries from the the jungles of Brazil or whatever it happens to be, you know, a whole food shopper. So mm-hmm. if, if you're a whole food shopper and all of a sudden you don't have a whole foods budget, what do you do? So maybe you start understanding, well, you know, maybe the foundation, the protein, the carbs, the fats, the most important thing. So mm-hmm. I can rearrange my diet to fit my budget and still have a healthy outcome. That's going to be really important. So people need to understand that. And there are a lot of problems that we see swirling in the world around us, um, whether it's finance and economics, whether it's social unrest, whether it's energy, whether it's climate change, anything you want to name, like these are issues. And the thing is, if you're going to tackle an issue, you need to be brave enough to have a conversation about it and also inspire other people to have conversations and then look for divergent viewpoints. Because if all you do is exist within an echo chamber, it's not going to do you any good. You're not learning anything new. So Agreed. if, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, like it's it's a huge thing that a lot of people get uncomfortable about because they're afraid of whatever stigma might be attached to it, right? Because if you have a conversation with someone who's out group, well, all the stigma that you have for that out group, you're afraid of it getting placed on you within your in group. And then mm-hmm. that's kind of what leads to these um, siloed ways of thinking where people get played. You know, you get played by obesity, you get played by alcoholism, you get played by anything that you can think of. Because again, like you, 
generally operate in life, and many people do this, where, and I'm not pointing at you and saying specifically, Alan, but I'm saying like the general us, right, as human beings, we always want to kind of opt for the path of least resistance. So if you have an issue in your life that you see you're facing, it's always a lot easier to say it's someone else's fault, right? Mm -hmm. This thing that I'm not happy with, well, I don't have to feel bad about it because it's somebody else's fault. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm obese. Well, you know, it's not my fault because obesity is not a choice. Right. A lot easier to go to bed every night thinking that than realizing, wait a minute, like this is on me. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, because, oh, alcoholism is not a choice. It's genetic. So I'm just going to keep drinking. Yeah. But yeah, I have a buddy, um, part of a part of a group on online. Um, his, his nickname is Boopy. And Boopy is going to eventually post a, an essay on how he believes obesity is not a choice. And I said, all right, cool, cool. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to when you post this, but hopefully you have a choice to post this. <laughs> and he's like, okay, man. <laughs> um, it's a great nickname, yeah. by the way, Boopy. Boopy. <laughs> yeah, the, the group on Twitter, it's really funny. It's like mostly vegans and and me and like two other non-vegans. And, and the group is called Boopy's Sausage Fest because obviously it's all dudes and it's very sausagey. <laughs> Beyond meat. You know. <laughs> You're right. We, we, that would be a great name for a group. But, uh, but yeah, I, I know that we, uh, we ripped on keto quite a bit and carb restriction, but I want people to read, um, my, the, the position stand of the ISSN on diets and body composition. So this was published in 2017. And so if you Google ISSN position stand diets, or even ISSN position diets, then it'll be the first or the second search result. And so we see um, in that paper, which I, I was the lead author of, and there are 16 other authors besides me, everything works, man. All diets are, are fair game. Everything from high carb, low fat, all the way to high fat, low carb, and even different approaches um, like intermittent fasting. Uh, and it, they all work. You, you just have to get a couple of things right that are non-negotiable like, or less negotiable, shall I say, protein and energy balance. And then the actual approach, the actual distribution of macronutrients in the diet can be individualized. They're, they're all legit. Even keto is a legit approach for people who prefer it, who actually prefer it, and who actually can sustain it indefinitely. Okay, great. You like that? Good. Good for you. That's what works. Then that's what you should do for you personally. And um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure I, I got that in before before we cut out. No, that, that that's a good call. And uh, there's more than one path to the top of the mountain. One of my favorite Bruce Lee quotes. But um, yeah, I'm, I, I love that you're leaving people with that resource. It's definitely actionable. Uh, but also for people that are watching or listening to this, where else can people find you, Alan? AlanAragon.com. Um, I'm most active on maybe Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, my handles on, on those platforms is the Alan Aragon, but yeah, 
um, alanaragon.com is where you can find all my stuff, whether it be the research review or the, the protein book I wrote or the most recent being the book called Flexible Dieting, which is a major release by a, by a big publishing house. And my book has been number one in the punk music category on Amazon for weeks on end. Punk music. <laughs> punk music. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess it's just rebellious to, to be <laughs> like, putting the truth out. So there you go. Hey, uh, macros is the new rock and roll, right? Um, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, Alan, we'll also have to get you set up uh, on Ibble too, because that's, again, a place where you can carry this conversation on with the people that are listening to it. And one of the reasons why I love working with them. Um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll take care of that after. Um, and it, it'll be easy to find us because we're going to put links everywhere to everything. So if you're on YouTube or seeing this on Instagram, you know, the, the magic of linking is something that uh, is alive and well today. But this yep. has been a fantastic conversation, Alan. I knew it wasn't going to disappoint. And I'm really thankful and happy that you came on and we were able to share this wisdom uh, with our audience here. Well, I want to thank you right back for doing great things for the industry with Avatar, with this podcast. Um, it's just tremendous. Um, everything that you do, I 100% I support, man. So thanks right back. Hey, and I'm, I'm sure we can have you back on at some point too, because there's there's a lot more that I want to talk about, but I definitely want to be respectful of your time. And, uh, you know, we, we got cool things coming. So anyway, Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure and we'll be talking soon. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. And if you want to keep the conversation with going, head to the Avatar Nutrition community on Ibble, go to the Sweat Podcast channel, and Alan and I will be in there to answer your questions. There's a really cool upvoting system, so the best questions will float to the top. And uh, you will get the best answers from two really awesome dudes. Hey, y'all, this is Mark. I hope you just enjoyed that podcast with Alan Aragon. We're about to go into the Q&A segment where we had people go on the Ibble app to ask their questions, and both myself and Alan answered them, and that's going to be the next section coming up. But if you want to listen to future episodes early and also have a chance to have your questions answered by myself and the guest, be sure to download the Ibble app so that way you can get those in. We can answer them, attach them to the end of these videos, and then you can have your question and the answer to it featured nationally. Hi guys, I have a question for either one of you, um, but you guys talked a lot about diet in this episode and, you know, counting calories, counting macros, all that. Um, so my question is, how do you make sure you don't go overboard with it and become hyper fixated on everything you eat? As in like, maybe you're heading down the path of an eating disorder instead of trying to maintain, maintain a healthy diet. Um, because I, yeah, there is a, I feel like there's a very fine line between the two and like, how do you manage that line? Hey, Amelia, that's an excellent question. I think one of the biggest things people can do to avoid getting way too OCD about, uh, counting their macros and tracking is to understand that it's okay to estimate. Again, results are going to come from trends and averages over time. So you don't have to be perfect. And if you're trying to perfectly zero out like 180 grams of protein, 225 carbs, and 73 fat on the dime, 
you're going to drive yourself nuts. But understanding that there are acceptable ranges that you can be within, which is why on Avatar we have the min and max range. And it's all about getting your averages in those ranges. And then just being consistent with the way that you estimate. Um, it really just kind of becomes like budgeting um, and shouldn't have too much different of a feel from that. So again, if you budget your finances, you'll kind of know, okay, am I spending too much? Am I spending too little? Same thing if you're budgeting your macros. Am I spending too many carbs every day on my breakfast? Maybe I could uh, pull that back a little, but it's just budgeting. Hi, I've got a question for Alan. So the big fad I've been hearing about in the nutrition world is called NAD+. Love to hear your feedback or thoughts on anything you found in your studies regarding that. Thank you. NAD has mainly been studied for its effects on cognitive decline. And the issue with NAD supplementation is that there have been some promising results in a substantive body of rodent data. However, in humans, the results have been mixed and equivocal and just highly meh. So we can't say currently that NAD is a worthwhile supplement for humans. And if you want to read more about that, there is a well-done review by Jared Campbell, and you can Google PMID 35956406, and it'll take you to uh, the abstract of that study, and you can click on for the full text in PubMed Central. Hey guys, this uh, question is either for uh, Mark or Alan out of all the fad diets that you've heard of over the years, which one has been debunked and the most ridiculous to you? Hey, Cisco, that's a great question. I think personally for me, it would have to be something that was called the master cleanse. Some people know of it as a lemonade diet, but basically you would stop eating all foods and you stop drinking anything but this concoction that was effectively lemonade with a bunch of like cayenne pepper and other uh, spices in it. And allegedly the capsaicin and the cayenne pepper would like make your body burn through more fat because, you know, oh, spicy, my mouth is burning. So because I sense burning in my mouth, I can think of burning of fat. It was completely stupid. And the only reason why people would lose weight on it is because they basically weren't taking any calories in. So they were starving themselves. And of course, you're going to lose a ton of weight if you're not consuming any nutrients and you're not consuming any calories. But as soon as you go back to eating any kind of real food or drinking anything with calories in it, the weight's going to come right back on. So I think the master cleanse might be one of the dumbest debunked diets of all time. Hey, what's up, Mark? Um, really enjoyed the podcast. Um, good job on that. Hey, so my question is, um, you know, like I've, I've met a lot of people that are, that are, uh, you know, really into like, you know, the keto diets, that kind of stuff. Um, but then I've also heard that there's, you know, a couple of, you know, major, major downfalls, major, um, pitfalls and things, you know, to, to, to watch out for, uh, when you're going into like into a keto diet. I don't really understand it. Um, I've been trying to kind of educate myself a little bit more about it. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about that? What's up, Omar? So the keto diet is one of a million and one ways to default the dieter to eating less calories by the end of the day or the end of the week and so on and so forth. So the in quotes magic of ketogenic dieting is that you cut out a lot of the foods that would typically 
provide an overabundance of total calories by the end of the day. And uh, this includes a lot of the refined carb, fat, hyperpalatable, energy dense um, junk foods and desserts and sweets and snacks. So if you got on keto, then you would just default to eating a lot less of that or, or none of it. And the end result is eating less calories by the end of the day or the end of the week. So keto is just one of the ways, one of the many ways to simply eat less calories. Continuing on about the keto diet, there's nothing inherently special about ketosis or the state of running severe carb restriction that would raise blood ketones that actually expedites the loss of body fat beyond the ability of initially lowering hunger levels. So that tends to be a temporary thing, a transient thing. So with ketogenic diets, what happens with a lot of folks, especially when they transition from the standard Western diet, which has too much of everything, to a ketogenic diet, then they end up eating more protein. And uh, that in and of itself increases the satiety of the diet. And hence, they end up eating less total calories by the end of the day. Continuing on about the keto diet, there's nothing inherently special about ketosis or the state of running severe carb restriction that would raise blood ketones that actually expedites the loss of body fat beyond the ability of initially lowering hunger levels. So that tends to be a temporary thing, a transient thing. So with ketogenic diets, what happens with a lot of folks, especially when they transition from the standard Western diet, which has too much of everything, to a ketogenic diet, then they end up eating more protein. And uh, that in and of itself increases the satiety of the diet. And hence, they end up eating less total calories by the end of the day. Continuing on about Hey, Emily, thanks for the question. So do I have any thoughts currently on the carnivore diet? I do have a few. It's interesting to see a lot of different people who have been on it. Um, I know even Jordan Peterson is somebody who has expressed uh, the benefits that he's had from it. However, in my view, I think it is very extreme to only be eating meat, literally. Um, obviously, that's more or less a no-carb diet, so you're just having protein and fats as the two macronutrients. You can do that. I mean, there's people like the Inuits that have historically lived off of seal and whale meat and really had almost little to no uh, berries, fruits, any kind of carbohydrates in that uh, sense. But they lived. So is it something humans can do? Yeah, I think so. Um, is it magical? Probably not. Uh, and is it extreme? Definitely. So again, long-term adherence is key to long-term success. So if you love it and can stick to it, I mean, go for it.